This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the city of Melbourne. Today's show comes from the Melbourne Simeon Network Annual Dinner. The Simeon Network is a national network of Christians in academia. Today's big question, is the Genesis account of creation simply a myth? We're asking this question today to Dr. Andrew Brown. Andrew works as a lecturer in Old Testament at the Melbourne School of Theology. He's previously worked as a Baptist pastor and his PhD topic was a history of Christian interpretation of the creation week in Genesis chapter one. And he joins me now. So please welcome Dr. Andrew Brown. A PhD in the history of Christian interpretation of the creation week in Genesis one. It's a fascinating topic. So why was that? Well, I can actually remember having my imagination captured even when I was uh, being read the creation story by my parents when I was a child. Yeah. I can still remember the, the kind of the page of the Bible. But uh, I just think uh, questions of origins uh, capture everybody's imagination. They're so fundamental to understanding who we are, so I found that fascinating. Yep. And then I think my supervisors just steered me towards a topic that would stop me from making any uh, terrible errors that would prevent me from getting a PhD. Okay, right, okay. Uh, so that was what really drove you, it was just an understanding of origins. That's what, really what you were trying yes, to uncover. Yes, that's right, un yes. yes. Yeah. And knowing it was such a hot topic for, for the church today. Well, to kick off bigger questions, we do like to ask a couple of smaller questions. We do try to have a bit of fun on the show. Today we're asking Andrew Brown if the Genesis account of creation is simply a myth. So Andrew, in our smaller questions today are about fictional creation myths. Okay, well, there's two questions, both multiple choice. Question one, in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series, fiction writer Douglas Adams wrote about a race of small blue creatures, the Jatravadid people of Viltvodl VI. Now, they believed that the universe was sneezed out of the nose of a being called the Great Green Artelsesia. Now, given the nature of the Jatravadid creation myth, what did they fear the coming of to end the world? Okay, was it A, the arrival of the mega Vix vapor drop? Was it B, the coming of the great white handkerchief? Was it C, the appearance of the giant nasal spray? Or D, the descent of the mighty sleeve from the sky? So which of those uh, was the Jatravadid people of Vilt Vodal 6? As you said, creation origins are important. Yes. So which one do you think they were fearing it to end the world? Well, I, I seem to remember talking to them at another table at the restaurant at the end of the universe. All oh, right, uh, yeah. But from memory, <laughs> it might have been B, the great handkerchief. The great white And that's correct. Oh. Yes, it is, yes. <laughs> why not, why not? Now, according to Douglas Adams, the Jatravadid have blue skin and 50 arms each, and they were the only race of people who invented the aerosol deodorant before the wheel. <laughs> um, so Adams also believed that his story about the Jatravadids was a parody of the Christian story of Genesis. So were you aware of the Jatravadid creation myth when you were doing your research? No. Okay. <laughs> In question two, in J.R.R. Tolkien's creation epic describing the origin of the world, the Lord of the Rings, how did the god of Tolkien's universe, Iluvatar, create? Was it by A, sneezing, B, speaking, C, singing, or D, spitting? It was C, singing. You're on fire, <laughs> it's correct, yes, yeah. Well, Andrew, 
your abilities are beyond mythical for you got two of our two smaller questions right. Big round of applause. So Andrew, there have been many creation myths. Uh, the ones by Tolkien and Adams are probably fall into, into that category. Many in our world today would consider the first chapter of the Christian Bible in the same way, simply a myth. So is myth one of the ways that the opening chapter of the Bible has been interpreted? Uh, yes, so it certainly has. And that really became a strong understanding of how the early chapters of Genesis work from about 1800 or late 1700s. Okay. So it's only a relatively recent sort of <coughs> phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah, that's yeah. right. So um, the more adventurous kind of church scholars were beginning to say things like that around about 1800. Right, okay, but it wasn't a dominant thought prior to that, perhaps? No, no, not myth as such. Right, no. okay. Yeah. So in your research, so what did you discover about the history of interpretation of Genesis 1? How has it been interpreted? So Yeah, so one way to break it down is to say, was it being interpreted, uh, you could say literally versus allegorically or mystically. Right. Uh, you could say... Um, plain sense, you know, kind of the surface sense of the text versus looking for a hidden sense. Yeah. And so there was a constant battle as to, is that surface sense that you get when you first read it, is that the sense we should be looking for, or is actually there a higher priority on looking for some other sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, so what, what have people looked for? What, mm. what were the different ways people have mm. looked at it? So in the early church, uh, Christians were really interested in reading their Old Testament to discover something about Christ. Right. And so it often meant that they read in a kind of a symbolic way most of the Old Testament. So what does that mean? What sort of, what sort of symbols would they find in there? Uh, well, in the case of uh, Genesis 1, they believed that the word by which God spoke creation into being was the word that John talked about right. in his first chapter. So it was the Logos. So Christ was the, the agent of creation. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not obvious from a surface reading, so that clearly to our eye is a, is a way of kind of reading beneath the surface. Um, but they were most interested in finding out from each chapter of their Old, their old Testament, uh, surely there's something about Christ here. Right, okay. So there were, some of them were looking for Christ in there. Mm. What other things were people mm. finding in Genesis 1? Yeah. So certainly others were still looking to discover something about origins, but it depended, they weren't as interested in the origin of the physical world as we are. So if we think of how things came to be, we tend to think very physically. Mm -hmm. But uh, in the world of the early church, um, Jesus and the apostles on for a long time, they were really interested in how the inbuilt order of the world came to be. And the most important parts of that order were invisible. Right. Um, many people in the classical world were still thinking about God or gods and then a whole raft of invisible beings and invisible powers and realities. And so they were interested in a, a, the, the order of the world and how it came to be, but the physical was kind of second priority okay. there. There were more important. So is this things like angels they were looking for? Uh, certainly. So famously, uh, Augustine and uh, following Oregon and others found a way to kind of weave angels into their understanding of the early chapters of Genesis because they couldn't imagine that something so important, something higher up the scale, could possibly really be omitted right. from the creation story. Okay, so there are some who saw it sort of symbolically or sort of with a deeper meaning, mm. but then you said there are others who saw it more of a plain reading of the text. What, 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 what sort of yeah. people were saying that? In, in the early centuries, there was a bit of kind of wobbling back and forth, and then I feel as if by about 400 a lot of the famous church fathers 
come from just the late 300s and around 400, like Augustine. And so they were coming to a kind of a synthesis where they didn't want the understanding of the creation story to be too abstract and too, too kind of allegorical. Uh, they what felt do you, what it was do you mean by allegorical. There was the possibility of dissolving the creation account into talking so purely about ontology, about the being of things, that it really didn't have anything to do with the origin of things. Right. Okay. Um, and so, uh, yeah, some of the church fathers were really kind of standing on their digs and making sure it remained. Uh, an account of the origin of, of the, actual the real world that we know. Right, yeah. okay, yeah. Now, today much criticism of the first chapter of the Bible revolves around the creation uh, account describing a very short period of time, just seven days. Now, wasn't there criticism uh, in the earlier times when critics asked, well, if God's so powerful, why did he take so long to create? Why didn't he just do everything at once? Is, is that what is one of the criticisms of the early, in the ancient times? That's right. So Augustine said it would be a strange thing if it took God as long to create the world as, as it took for us to say that. Um, and so right. it, it creates, uh, even today, it creates an interesting challenge uh, if, if we're thinking literally about the creation week to ask, so would God's creative work occupy the whole 24 hours or would it be done in the first minute after midnight and, and then kind of a gap, you know, once you start to press the details and... and take it over literally, you're in trouble with kind of the schedule involved. Right, okay. I mean, so you mentioned Augustine there. Now, he wrote a book, The Literal Interpretation of Genesis. So what does he mean by literal? Yes, uh, he was kind of um, innovative with the meaning of literal. And in his uh, commentary on Genesis, he's a little defensive at points, as if expecting a bit of kickback on, even in his own day, on whether his interpretation was literal or not. Right. So he still felt that the days of the creation week represented um, phases of angelic knowledge and right. didn't actually reflect chronological days. And yet he was trying to defend Genesis as historical right from the beginning. Right. So is that how we saw literal in that sense, that it was actually connected to reality rather than just a uh, symbolic meaning? Yes, so uh, because it was narrative, uh, right back to the beginning of Genesis, he felt it was important to defend his history. And he'd been involved in a controversy with uh, the church father, Jerome, who had to avoid a critic's um, jibe at Christianity, had uh, said that a New Testament event, an event recorded in the, New in the New Testament, didn't actually happen. And Augustine really resisted that. He sort of felt we, we can't go down the track of starting to say that event, apparently historical events are fictional. And so he became increasingly firm on trying to defend historicity. Right. But not in, a, not in a way that we perhaps would recognise as historical in right. terms of the creation. So the way it literally is used today perhaps is different to the way that Augustine intended it. Uh, it certainly is different from Augustine, yeah. Right, yeah. So you've talked about some of the options, some of the ways perhaps to interpret or has been interpreted. So then how should we do it? So Genesis 1.1 says the very set first sentence of the Bible uh, starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what kind of literature do we have here? What, what, what's he, how should we read it? Mm. The great thing about that statement is it's so kind of global and so simple at the same time. Mm. But it kind of comes back to our approach to how can God express truth about himself in a way that human, human beings can understand. Yep. And so it seems fundamental to that act of communication that God must use language of analogy. In other words, express his nature and actions in terms that we have some uh, parallel for, some, some analogue for. And so uh, Augustine says that when 
Genesis 1 talks about creating in a week. Um, it's expressing God's creative work in a, in a mode, uh, according to a mode of action that we would use, according to the way that a human uh, construction might work in a human week. Mm, mm. So should we consider it a, a sort of a, the creation myth though, just conjured up in the imagination of an inspired author like Douglas Adams or Tolkien? One commenter on Goodreads described Tolkien's work, The Silmarillion, as an epic tale of biblical proportions. So should we treat Genesis similarly? Just as, you know, how, how are they different? Mm. Um, really, the Silmarillion works because it um, works on the back of uh, a narrative like Genesis mm-hmm. and draws, draws some power from it. Uh, the writer of Genesis has anchored the creation events into historical reality and particularly the story of Israel uh, with the kind of the the chords of the genealogies that run all the way back. Right, yeah. Uh, Now, we do have to recognise that access to actual events in historical terms gets more and more um, distant and more and more abstract the further back you go. So the early chapters of Genesis, you're not dealing with the kind of history that someone can witness and pass on a report. No. Uh, First chapter of Genesis, there's nobody present you know, until well, the end. The, well, if God is, I suppose. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's the only one there, I suppose, right, at that time. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So th- this is not history as we know it. What's well, different type of history, I suppose, to the New Testament, is that's actually recorded by eyewitness testim- uh, that's right. eyewitnesses. Yeah. When scholars have tried to find a good genre label for the early chapters of Genesis, they've really struggled and they've often had to admit that it's... Um, its own category, you know, swing right. and heiress. Just Genesis. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so you've got but Genesis category. A good parallel with Tolkien's writings is that as you go back to uh, that very unusual point of time, kind of the birth of the world, uh, the picture in the Bible at both ends of time is that heavenly things and earthly things begin to meld. And so the way that the garden story is described, you've got heavenly things involved with earthly things. God goes walking in the garden. It's gar- the garden is guarded at the end by heavenly beings like cherubim. And then as the story of the patriarchs unfolds, there's this kind of increasing separation. So as you've got the Nephilim, things. for example, in Genesis chapter 6. Yes, that's there's right. This kind of heavenly beings sort of yeah. intermarrying with people, yeah. which is a weird passage of Bible that... So this is kind of part of that idea, is it? Yeah, that's right. So those kinds of encounters become rarer and rarer as you get into kind of the world nearer the present. And that's true of Tolkien's world as well. Mm -hmm. You know, elves are disappearing, dwarves are disappearing, ants are kind of freezing up, and in the end it's just going to be kind of the human world that we know. So there are similarities. It actually really helps us to imagine what's going on in Genesis in a way. Mm. And so even there, we know, as a colleague of mine said, we know when we're dealing with talking snakes and magic fruit that we're not just dealing with ordinary history here, Mm. Um, but it visualises what the world would be like if, if... Heaven and earth are not divorced. Right. And that present history kind of, we, we sense the gulf between the two. Right. So it helps to actually think in terms of what other ancient Near East uh, creation accounts mm. are like. Well, there's a question come in from our text line from our live audience here, uh, which says, um, I've heard a bit about there being words and references in Genesis 1 that link to ancient Near Eastern myths of creation from the surrounding culture. Is that true? And if so, does this suggest a kind of myth-making or counter-myth-making as part of Genesis. People have sometimes seen signs of kind of residual myth in Genesis 1. Um, What do you mean by residual residual myth, like myths from other cultures? Yes, that's right, sorry, Mesopotamian especially. Mm -hmm. Um, The word for the deep in Genesis 1 to Tahom seems to be a 
cognate of uh, Tiamat, uh, the goddess in the Babylonian story, Enuma Elish. And there's other points of contact like that. But actually, when you read the, the account of the creation week, it, it, it's either kind of non-mythological or, or demythologized because there's no combat between God and some enemy who resists. There's no sense that there's a kind of a, an active chaos in that verse, chapter 1, verse 2, that has any ability to resist God's will. It just seems to be the medium of his creation. And so it's a strikingly, strikingly non-mythological chapter. Mm. I think the Eden now... Well, compared to other ancient Near Eastern myths. Yes, yeah. yes, it is. Um, it, and so whether it's polemical, whether it sort of deliberately attacks them, uh, in some ways it, it may. It's subtle, if, if so. Um, the writer could have named sun and moon and just calls them the greater light and the lesser light. So that's been seen as a perceived kind of a deliberate slight against worship of the heavenly bodies. Mm -hmm. That could well be true. But it, it, it's subtle. It doesn't kind of dominate. I don't, I don't think it's a dominantly polemic text either. Well, some would say though that the Genesis being simply myth is just fine because myths communicate deep personal truths. For example, one scholar said, by throwing off the shackles of having to believe in the historicity of the Bible, we are free to interpret the stories as a testament to the religious experiences of people from a different age. Are you comfortable with that idea? That statement, when applied to the Bible, is a very clumsy instrument because the Bible has a whole range of different literary genres. Yeah. I think if a biblical text is presenting itself as history, then it is inviting itself to be critiqued as history. Mm -hmm. So how is Genesis 1 inviting itself to be critiqued, though? <laughs> yes, uh, it is tricky on the basis that it is unusual. Um, uh, it doesn't have uh, obvious parallels. I, I do think that we should not judge it as ordinary history because that would be something of a category error. But it doesn't want to be made purely abstract. It does not want to be separated from the physical world. So views of those who say that Genesis 1 is entirely kind of about function or it's just about how kind of the present social world came into being. Uh, yeah, we need to give more credit to the fact that Genesis retains this anchor in, in physical reality. In the real world. And, and kind of historical reality via the genealogies. But there's a lot that is generic and prototypical in those early chapters. So mm. you notice that the, the individuals named, you know... Uh, we're used to reading Adam in our Bibles, but uh, for several chapters, it's the man. It's Ha-Adam. Mm. It's not naming a person. It's this kind of generic individual. Although he then begets a, a nation, and, and in history, he's actually known as Adam. For example, in Luke's genealogy, he's actually called Adam. That's right, and, and that's true in Genesis when you get to particularly chapter 5, at the head of the genealogy. Mm. So there is a kind of a, a double thing going on between uh, a generic kind of category and an individual. So do you think there are parts then of Genesis 1 that transcend a particular interpretation framework? You know, that the meaning's the same kind of regardless of what framework you, you lose. I mean, for example, in, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What do you think? Yes, yeah, so I, I would agree. I, I think um, nearly everybody who comes to the chapter asking for meaning would, would discover that that's kind of a straightforward meaning, that God is the author of reality that exists. Heaven and earth are really attempting to be a global statement, you know, about really all things, everything in between. A couple of other important things, I think, are that creation is ordered. And so 
chapter one is all about introducing distinction into what was indistinct. Uh, one thing is separate from another. Uh, one thing is not another. And there are spaces for living in. So I think order is fundamental to creation. That's one thing mm. the chapter is and saying. that's independent of your framework. You just... Yes, <laughs> sort of I, I do think that would transcend your framework. Also, that creation is meant for life and is meant to be full of life. And that creation is good, including the physical world. Uh, that, surprisingly, has not always been... Uh, part of people's value systems right. when they've come to Genesis. Even though it's, they're quite plainly in the text. Yes, that's right, because you know, there's always been a little kind of thread of Gnostic thought in um, Western history, and Gnostic thought really despises physical creation and longs to escape it, and so they, they kind of clashed with Genesis. Even though the Genesis itself actually affirms it. Well, you've just raised, I mean, there, there are uh, critics of Genesis, the creation narrative look to apparent discrepancies within the account, as you've just tried to order, recognise some of the order there, but it's assumed that, uh, look at the, these discrepancies and kind of think it's flawed, ahistorical and anti-scientific and hence perhaps mythical. So for example, light appears on day one in verse three when God says, let there be light, but this appears before the sun, which is made on day four when God made two lights. So this seems to contradict kind of logical and scientific understandings of the world. So does that diminish the credibility of Genesis? It helps to understand that in other ancient Near East literature, there is this pattern of often six units and then a seventh climactic unit in a, in a narrative to bring it to a climax. It happens in other myths about the flood. Uh, you know, in one, the ship is kind of lodged on the mountain for six days and then the climactic moment of change comes on the seventh day. And so uh, when you see that a few times, you realise, oh, this is kind of a narrative, narrative device um, to give shape to a story. And so it means that uh, someone like myself wouldn't feel obliged to press... The, creation, the, the weak structure there is more than a detail, but I would understand it as a, a framework for presenting the order of creation and not that we have to sign up to, to say that that was the scheduling of creation's mm -hmm. origin. <clears throat> Um, there's another question from our live audience here. So as you mentioned the schedule for the biblical creation account, how do you square the schedule of Genesis 1, six days with apparent order of events, with the apparently different conflicting one of Genesis 2, with a different order of events, plants not growing, etc., until after people are made? Mm. So you realise then that you shouldn't press the chronology as a historical chronology. Um, simply as a historical chronology. Yeah, so when you look at Genesis chapter 2 and you read it through in the Hebrew, um, there are past tense verbs that you can translate as pluperfects and uh, a version like the NIV does that to kind of uh, allow that sequence to match the sequence in chapter 1. Uh, but when you read it kind of as discourse, it really seems a little bit forced to do so. So it seems as though um, uh, when God says that, you know, it's not good for this man to be alone, that he kind of generates animal life and brings it along and no, none of it's satisfactory and so then creates woman. So I think it is true to say that the sequence in the two are, is different. Mm, mm. So what do, we mean, what do we make of that though? If the chronological structure is a literary device uh, that's part of the expression of the truth in there, um, then it no longer matters okay. if the sequence is not there. I'll give you an illustration of what happens if you um, really adhere strongly to 
the chronological sequence. I've got a book on creation on my shelf that dedicates one page to showing that all the events of the garden narrative can fit in day six of creation so that it can work perfectly as ordinary chronology. And so it schedules Adam's day. It's got time for morning tea. It's it's got got time for lunch. It's got time for him to name the animals, two, three hours to name the animals and so forth. And you read that page and you go, something's gone amiss here. This is really not how I'm supposed to be reading Genesis. Right, okay. Now, the famed atheist scientist Richard Dawkins once said, nearly all peoples have developed their own creation myth and the Genesis story is just one that happened to have been adopted by one particular tribe of Middle Eastern herders. It has no more special status than the belief of a particular West African tribe that the world was created from the excrement of ants. So why should we believe in the Genesis account of creation? The creation story... Uh, is not this um, kind of lone idea floating alone. It's plugged into a whole kind of redemptive story that says that God wishes to be related to these living, relating individuals he's put within his creation. So it's the first chapter of a bigger, grander story. Mm. And that bigger, grander story is something that really is the, the kind of where the connection comes mm. in some respects. It's not just because well, we should believe any creation myth, it's because mm. of that connection story is one of the ways mm. we can, in some ways, connect to it and uh, test perhaps to see if it's, worth, it's trustworthy mm. historically. Yeah, I, I would just invite anyone who doubts its uniqueness to compare it to one of these other ancient stories and see how they read and ask which one... Uh, has the best shot at making sense to an audience 3,000 years later. I mean, there's, there's just no comparison. So what impact has it had, you know, reflecting on this chapter for a substantial part of your life, what difference, impact has that had on you? Yes, um, so it's really important to me now um, to see... Uh, I, I love the, the natural world, I love science and nature, so I love seeing that as authored by God, and I think... Many who try to speak um, of an alternate way for the world to be that's naturalistic have to keep personifying other forces and other processes and saying that they did this and that. So uh, that struggle doesn't exist if you just recognise personal agency behind creation. But then that, that ultimately relates right down to myself and my life as intended by God. And if I believe my life was not accidental but intended, then it gives me dignity that's not dependent on how other people are dealing with me. And it invites me to go looking for that purpose for which I was made and to live it as vigorously as I can. Mm. And so you find the Genesis account still persuasive, even 3,000, 4,000 years after it was written? Yeah, it's remarkably versatile. And so I think we need to recognise it as both an ancient and an eternal kind of text. Uh, and that will better shape our expectations of what it is and what it does. Mm. So, Andrew, wrapping up, is the Genesis account of creation simply a myth? Not simply a myth. Let me leave you with the Bible's reflection on the big question. Is the Genesis account of creation simply a myth? From Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I look forward to you joining us next time. For bigger questions, please thank our guest today, Dr. Andrew Brown. Hi everyone, Rob Martin here, host of Bigger Questions. Now if you'd like to be part of the live audience of Bigger Questions, we're currently recording. 
Uh, we're doing a Melbourne City Lunchtime series throughout September and October. Now, every fortnight, we're exploring Songs of the Heart, six ancient songs uh, with wisdom for life's biggest questions. And we have some fantastic guests, uh, including Matt Jacoby, lead singer of the uh, Psalms project band Sons of Korah. We've got Sylvie Palladino, who regularly performs at uh, Carols by Candlelight. I've got CEO, Dr. Jenny George. She's, she's going to be speaking on mental fitness, and there's much more as well. All the recordings are at lunchtime, and you can be part of the live audience uh, where you could ask your questions, you can have your cheer uh, recorded for the podcast, but also ensure you bring your other big questioners as we reflect on these ancient songs with some surprising answers for the modern world. So you can check out biggerquestions.org slash songs for all the details, and we hope to see you there. And also, in case you missed it, we're now streaming Bigger Questions on Spotify. So if you're a Spotify user, you can subscribe, stream, and enjoy yet more Bigger Questions. So thanks again for listening to Bigger Questions. Don't forget to follow Bigger Questions on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please share the show with your friends or colleagues. Let's get the word out and get more people asking the bigger questions in our world. And if you want to invest in bigger thinking, then maybe you could support us on Patreon. For as little as US $1 a podcast, you can help create better dialogue around the bigger questions of life. So thanks once again for listening, and remember to keep asking the bigger questions.